I should have, I was kind of bummed out when Pierre came up and got Everett because apparently I am the less cute part of the thing, of things uh, from announcements, but um, uh, it would have helped, I'm sure, to have him up here with me, but um, anyway, so if you didn't see that, I was sitting with my grandson just a second ago, but um, well, good morning and thank you for joining us. You know, my name is Steve. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. And like Tina said, we are studying through the gospel of John and we just kind of kicked off our journey like, I don't know, three or four sermons ago. And, and, and so we're just in chapter two. So it's a good time to join us as a church family. We're kind of at the beginning of things um, in John. And, and uh, here in, you know, over the last, over chapter one, I, I do feel really loud, Grady. I don't know if I'm in the monitors or something, but I'm hearing myself, which... It's always kind of weird when you're preaching and you're hearing yourself and, I don't know, throws me. But uh, as we've been going through chapter 1, you know, chapter 1 starts off with this, this kind of glorious uh, declaration by, by the Apostle John of who Jesus was and this kind of these big cosmic sort of like scale of, of John being the, of, of Jesus being the true light of the world, that he's the, he's the creator God, he's the one um, through whom life comes to us and, and that he he reveals to us God's glory in bodily form, and it's, it's, it's a glory of God that's full of grace and truth. You know, and then what, what beginning in the second half of chapter one, uh, you know, our focus came right back down onto, like, first century, like, Palestine, on the dusty, like, shores of the Jordan River where John the Baptist was, was baptizing. And John the Baptist made this declaration about Jesus, that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it was through him that this new ministry and this new era of the work of the Spirit would come. You know, and by John declaring that the Lamb of God had come in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is that, is that all of the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus and all of the like, sacrificial system and the temple and the priesthood and the, and the promise of a coming king and all of those things were wrapped up in him. And we saw those reflected in the next, as the chapter went on where, where seven different titles were given to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's a rabbi. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's Jesus. Jesus, son of Joseph, you know, all of the promises of the, of the scripture up to that point, like embodied themselves in Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. You know, and as we look at this, it's important for us to realize that, that the, the gospels, and this was one of the, are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this, this one, John, they're not just written to be like histories, they're not just a historical document telling us the facts. They're, um, they're actually documents that are written by the apostles to make a certain point about Jesus or multiple points about who he was. And in making that point, um, the, the writers of the gospel like, want to present Jesus in a way that demands a response from us. Either we believe in him or we don't. But they're not just histories to be like, oh, that was interesting. They're, they're God's word to us and they demand a response to us from us. And if Jesus is who he says he was, um, it's a response that should like, be all-encompassing in our life. And it's more than, like, our response to him should be more than just, oh, I'm going to show up for one or two meetings a week and sing some songs and, and give a little shout-out to Jesus, the Son of God, and then just go about my own life. You know, his, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he demands, like, like our response like, should be all-encompassing. And if he's not, we should all go home and watch the NFL playoffs, right? Um, 
That's true. I mean, that's, the Apostle Paul says that. This is bonus material because you laughed at that. <laughs> Paul says if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, which kind of encompasses everything that he was, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? It's a waste of time. But Jesus, you know, my conviction is, and I think the conviction of most of you is, Jesus is who he says he is. And if he is, it should change everything. You know, and so we're going to get into this story. So that, that was kind of the opening statements of John's, like, like attempt to make a case of who Jesus is. And now we're going to get into, like, exhibit A. Um, over these first 12 chapters of the book of John, John's going to be, like, like pointing out different things that Jesus did or said. And this morning is exhibit A. And it's, it's the wedding feast at Cana, if you're familiar with that, where, um, and I've entitled today's message, Better Wine, because it's the, it's the, uh, it's the incident in Jesus' life, the first of his signs that he does, that, that where he turns water into wine. And it's the best wine that the, that the head of the banquet had ever tasted. And, and Jesus is the source of better wine. You know, so and it's gonna, our text is going to break out into two sections. And this one I'm able to get an outline out of, and I'm not super committed to it. Uh, so if you just want to go without an outline, that's okay too. But uh, we, we find out in verses 1 through 8 that the lesser wine runs out. And then in the, the last couple of verses, we see this greater wine in abundance. And, uh, and ultimately, this is more than about just wine and a wedding feast. And we'll, we'll look into that in just a minute. So please stand as I read uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And, um, and then I'll pray and we'll get into our study together. This is, this is God's word for his church. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water parts set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, I would just pray um, that very thing that verse 11 talked about, that you would empower me amidst my inabilities um, to, to just reveal Jesus Christ in this text and that, that um, we would behold his glory and that we would believe in him to a greater degree and that in believing we would find life in his name. And um, so I just ask that your spirit would accomplish that this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, before I get into the, into the details of verses like 1 through 10, um, I want to I start off focusing on what John just closed this section with there in verse 11, because uh, verse 11 is John's way to clue us in on what's really going on in this passage. Because he says there in verse 11, the beginning of his signs, and he uses this particular word there, signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Now, when John uses the word sign, like he's using a word that actually um, is a pretty significant word in this text. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the, but the idea of, of a sign is that it's a real thing. Like Jesus really lived in Cana, like went to Cana of Galilee. He really went to a party. The wine really went, ran out. Jesus really turned water into wine and the party continued, right? Like that really happened. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just some made up thing. But the importance about a sign, as real as it is, is that it, it points us to something greater. Like a sign is meant to reveal that something bigger is going on than just the, the on-the-surface facts and details. It's Jesus' way of saying, like, oh, I'm going to do something here that's meant to point to something beyond the immediate circumstances, to, to something about, like, the kingdom of God and something about my work and something about who I am. It's, it's, it's a sign pointing us forward. And in fact, it's, it's something that like John uses to kind of drive, his, drive the, the, especially these first 12 chapters of the book. If you look at John chapter 20, at the end of the book, he says this in verses 30 and 31. He says, therefore, many other signs, that same word, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what, Jesus is, what John's telling us is that I'm going to record for you certain signs that Jesus did. And the purpose of me writing these signs is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he is God embodied in the flesh, and that by believing in him, you will have life. Like, stakes are high here. It's not just about a wedding party. It's about finding life in the name of Jesus because of the signs. And the first one, exhibit A, is this wedding feast. But what John's telling us is there's more to going on than just what you see on the surface. You know, I think it's important for us to, as I've been studying through John, like one of the realizations I've come to is that is that um, as you read the book of John, are, are, is anybody reading through John kind of along with us as we're studying this? Just as anybody? Okay, there's some of you. That's good. Um, I would encourage you guys to do that. But one of the things I realized is that as John's writing this, is he's not writing it like a regular story. Like he, he, um, he's writing it assuming that we kind of know how the story ends. And that we're going to interpret things based on what we know happens. So, for example, we saw that last week, I think, when, when he introduced to us Andrew. He said Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And then he goes on to tell us how Simon Peter got his name. But he kind of assumed that you would know who Simon Peter was. You remember that from a couple of weeks ago or last week, I think that was? Um, we see it again in the, in the end of chapter 2. Flip over to chapter 2, verse I think verse 22. Spoiler alert, right? If you don't know where the story is going, verse 22. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, um, oh, no, no, verse 22. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Like, wait a minute. Like, if you're a first-time reader, you're in chapter 2. His resurrection from the dead is not until chapter 20, and, like, John just slips that out? Like, so John's telling us, like, oh, like, if you're going to, if this is the first time reading it, read through it and then go back and read it in light of what's going to happen, because he doesn't seem concerned about, like, tipping his hand to what's going to happen. Because we're not going to understand these events until we understand where the story's going. And so uh, I, I wrestled with this, some words on this. Hannah and Leanne helped me kind of find out some words on this. Like, the Gospel of John is meant to be read meditatively. Like we're supposed to be thinking through these details, and 
and like these signs that are talked about in the book of John are so most of the time, Jesus will do a sign, and then he'll, he'll pair that sign with a teaching that explains to us, like, what it was all about. Like, he feeds 5,000 people, and then he says, I'm the bread of life, and, and he gives us a clue. This wedding feast at Cana is a little bit different, where he, the story just comes out there, the evidence is just presented, but there's no, like, teaching on it. So you, you need to really, like, kind of dig in and start mulling it over and, and look at the clues that are included in the text. And if you're one of those people that likes, like, murder mystery or something like that, John's for you because he's really subtle in dropping these clues. And as, you're, as you read it kind of meditatively and churning on it, uh, I think you'll begin to see what he's, what he's trying to teach. We also want to read it mindfully of where the story's going because until you realize where the story's going, you won't be able to make sense of what's going on in the moment. And we'll see that as we get into it. So I hope that makes sense. That's kind of a little bit of background of how we have to look at stories like this. And, and this wedding feast at Cana is probably one of the more difficult ones to sort through. So I wanted to spend some time at the beginning. And um, I feel like I should ask questions. Any questions on that? <laughs> Mindfully of where the end, where the story's going. And if you don't know where the story's going, read through the whole book, come back to it. I gave you a little, like I said, a spoiler. Jesus is going to raise from the dead at some point. Um, I would just love to. Like, I, I, I kind of grew up in a Christian home. I didn't come to, to faith until I was, like, in high school. But um, I would have loved to be one of those people that, like, just grew up in a completely non-Christian, like, context and, like, heard these stories for the, like, read this for the very first time. He'd be like, what? Like, would have been awesome. It's like easy for us, I think, to begin like, oh yeah, dude rose from the dead, like no big deal. Um, that's the way John talks about it. Oh yeah, by the way, when he rises from the dead, you know. Um, but anyway, let's get back into it. Enough random thoughts. Uh, let's jump into lesser wine runs out in verses one through eight. And it's interesting because like this story of the wedding feast at Cana is only 11 verses and it's, it's really like linguistically efficient, unlike my sermons, right? Like he tells this story in just a really brief glimpse of time, and it just moves along, and, um, and he gives certain facts, and he leaves other facts out. On the third day, that'll come into a fact, uh, in, factor in a little bit later, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus was there, uh, his mom was there, and his disciples were there, and they're at this party. And you got to think about a wedding, like, weddings in the ancient world were like a big deal, and it was probably like the biggest deal. They're not unlike our weddings today. You know, but people would, they would have this huge feast. People would be celebrating. There would be dancing. The, like, the whole village would come out. Like, and, and the feast would sometimes last multiple days. And it kind of, and, and actually the, the ceremony actually happened after the feast. Like they would have this big feast. And then in the evening there would be this, like the marriage itself. Kind of like opposite what we do. We usually like go through the ceremony and then have the party. I think they partied on both ends. But, um, but there was like, you know, this is where they're kind of like leading up to this wedding. And, and uh, it's, it's fun. Everybody's celebrating. And then there's these words that Jesus' mom spoke to her. They have no wine. Which, if, you're, if, if you ever planned a wedding, that would be like the equivalent of like, oh, our caterer completely didn't show up. Or... Or, like, the pastor, like, is AWOL, like, or all of that put together. 
Because in the ancient world, like wine symbolized like celebration. It symbolized joy. It symbolized like God's provision for them. And, and it, it kind of represents the entire thing. And, and it was a big deal. Like, I, I can't believe this, but multiple commentaries told me this, that lawsuits could even be brought against the like bride and groom if like the, if the wine ran out, which is weird to me, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm glad as a father of four daughters, like that law isn't in effect today. Uh, But it was a big deal. And in fact, it was such a big deal that at the very least, it would cause extreme embarrassment upon the the bride and groom. I think, I don't think it's unsafe, unlikely to say it would bring shame upon the bride and groom. And it could even derail the wedding itself if the party like falls flat. So you know, John is, John is like being really fast with these details. He's, ex- he's expecting us to know like, oh, we've all been to weddings. Like weddings have happened since the beginning of the world. It's the celebration of the joy of love between a man and a woman. And the very one that presided over the first wedding in the garden happened to be sitting in attendance at this party as, as the wine runs out. And so you should feel kind of a pit in your stomach, like, oh, no, this day that they've been looking forward to, this day that's supposed to be this like, culmination of their love for each other is now about to just crash and burn. I don't think we can overstate that. It's a big deal. So I don't, we don't really know why Mary drops the line, brings it to Jesus, hey, they have no wine. Jesus' response to her is interesting, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? And a lot of your translations will say, like, what is it to us? Or what is it to me and you? Or it's translated a whole bunch of ways because it's an idiom in the Greek. It's, a, it's an idiom that says, what to me and you is what it literally says. Um, and, it, and it's meant to kind of create some distance. It's, it's got a little tone of rebuke to it. But it's not like super like overt. Um, interestingly enough, when Jesus encountered some demons, the demons used the same expression back to him. Like, what is it to me and you? Like, what do you have to do with me? But so what Jesus is doing is he's kind of distancing himself from this problem. He's like, well, like, why are you bringing up the whole wine thing to me? And he doesn't even call her mom, which is interesting. Jesus never is recorded calling Jesus like Mary, his mother, uh, um, which is interesting. But here he calls her woman. And again, it's not as like disrespectful as it sounds. But there's, there's a little bit of rebuke there. And he's distancing himself from the problem. Like, why is this wine problem my problem? And then he gives us a reason. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, fortunately for us, like, uh, like this is one of those places where John's dropping a clue and a pretty overt one. You want to understand what's going on in this story. You need to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, my hour has not yet come. And he uses that expression throughout the, the book of John. In fact, um, I'm going to look at several of those right now. Like John chapter 7, verse 30. Um, he says, so they were seeking to seize him. These are the Jews seeking to seize Jesus. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus said something that upset the, the religious elite of the day. They wanted to arrest him, but why didn't it happen? Because in God's sovereignty, his hour hadn't come yet. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. 
Like there's this, again, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but the timing wasn't right according to God's plan, and so it didn't happen. Uh, John chapter 12, at the end of this section where John lays out all these signs, Jesus is speaking, he says this, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. This is immediately before he goes to, the, to his crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. It's interesting what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, oh, now as we begin chapter, John chapter 13, which starts off at the night before Jesus was betrayed, my hour has come. What he's talking about there, it's, it's my hour to be, to be turned over into the hands of men. It's my hour to be arrested. It's my hour to be like falsely accused and, and tried and tortured and beaten and to carry my cross. And it's my hour to, to die and fall into the earth and through that like bear much fruit. And it's my hour to be, oh, we'll go to John 13, yeah, to be glorified. And this is what he says in John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's his hour that his love, that, that loved his disciples to the uttermost, to the end, would finally be expressed in his life, where he would die in our place be raised from the dead, and return to the Father and experience glory. So when, when, whenever you see this phrase, my hour has come or his hour had not yet come, what it's talking about is, is, that, is that momentous, decisive moment in human history where the Son of God came to earth, turned himself over to the hands of evil men, submitted himself to the power of darkness, was, was beaten, crucified, buried, rose again from the dead, surprise, and glorified. It's that when Jesus says his hour, it's his hour of sacrificial atonement, resurrection, and glory. And those two things are tied together. Like his suffering and his glory throughout the scriptures are tied together. In fact, Peter summarizes the life of Jesus. I don't have this on my slides, but in First Peter, he, he describes what the prophets prophesied. And he says, and they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So when Jesus speaks about his hour, it's his hour of bearing the guilt of humanity, dying, raising, and being glorified. That's Jesus' hour. It's the most important hour in human history, most important time in human history. And Jesus is telling his mom, like, like what's this wedding feast got to do with me? Like, what's this wine problem have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. You know, what Jesus is telling Mary is that what, what's about to unfold and what he's about to do um, in this celebration somehow points us forward to that day, somehow reflects what he's going to do. He brings in his hour because what, what he's about to accomplish in this wedding feast is somehow going to describe to us that hour where he is suffering and his glory. But before we get there, let me just get through point two, and then we'll circle back around for some, for some application. 
Um, point two, what we find out is that there's greater wine in abundance. Um, starting at verse 9, he says this, and when the, so, uh, and Jesus said to them, verse 8, draw some out now and take it to head waiter, and they took it to him, and I think verse 9 is really, really funny. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, it's interesting what John doesn't do. He doesn't focus any attention whatsoever on the fact that Jesus just turned the water into wine. He just, again, assumes like, it, like you almost know it. Oh, of course, you knew where this story was going. Of course, the water, t- he doesn't say, behold, Jesus turned the water into wine. Or like, everybody was surprised. He just said, oh, and when they took the water that it turned into wine to the head waiter, the head waiter says to the bridegroom, uh, verse, verse 10, and he said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. What the head waiter is saying is like, and it makes sense, right? Like, when we've got this multi-day party going on, we provide a whole bunch of wine for people, and then the strategy when you do a party like this is you serve the good wine first, because that's when everybody's like taste buds are at the finest. And then when, when they've drunk freely, and that's literally what it means, when they're drunk, then you serve the bad wine. And no one knows the difference, right? And, and the, the head waiter of this party is confused. He's like, well, why, why are you doing that? Like, there's surprise. Like, oh, no, he says, but like, the, the head waiter is surprised at this ladle full of, like, wine that he's tasting. Like, man, the best wine he's ever tasted is coming afterwards. Like, why are you wasting this good wine at this point in the party? Why didn't you bring it out earlier? And imagine his surprise when he goes and finds out, like, that it's not just, like, a couple reserved cases that the guy had in his cellar. And he's like, oh, we better pull this out because we're running low. Have you, I mean, and this is back in the last one. That's why I wasn't crazy about my outline. This is back in the last section. But look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water pots that were for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Um, so so a, a wine barrel, like a Pinot Noir barrel that we have all around us, uh, are, is about 69 gallons. I think it's 59 to 60 gallons exactly. Um, at least that's what I looked up. Wine barrels are 60 gallons. Uh, a bottle of wine is a 0.75 liters. You do the math. We're talking between 600 and 900 bottles of wine um, that Jesus provided for this wedding uh, to a town called Cana of Galilee, which nobody, so insignificant that nobody even knows where it is for sure. Like they, they, there's some places that they think 600 to 900 bottles of wine the best wine they ever tasted. In fact, John's wanting to emphasize like the quantity because he says, and they filled those jars to the brim. Do you, do you see that? It wasn't like they filled the jars until like what would normally be full. They filled it to, to the top. So if you'd like, when you dipped in, like stuff is spilling over. Like this was an abundance of the best wine that had come. So the party can continue. Hooray, right? Like if you're reading this to the kids, that's what you need to do. The cuter people thing. How did it go? The cuter part of the story, right? So she's not going to live that down for a while. Um, The party's able to continue because Jesus provides an abundance of greater wine um, afterwards. Now, John says the impact of this miracle, verse 11, the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee 
and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, I love that statement that John says he manifested his glory because if you really look at the details about what Jesus did in this, in this uh, miracle, like Jesus is kind of disengaged from the whole thing. It, it never says that Jesus did anything, like he didn't pray over the jars, he didn't, he didn't fill the jars himself, he told his servants to go fill the, the servants to go fill the jars, he didn't, even, he didn't say what he was going to do. In fact, when the head waiter's tasting it, like, he, he told the servants to take it to the head waiter, he's not even there. Like, Jesus is standing by, and yet this miracle is so significant with Jesus kind of standing off to the side of it all as it's all kind of playing out, that that John's able to say, and they beheld his glory. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse... Um, uh, <laughs> I thought I knew where it was. Uh, verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like, this miracle was so significant in the eyes of the disciples that even though Jesus kind of stood off from it, was distant from it, they were able to see his glory and, and we're just getting warmed up. Like this is kind of what Jesus said to Nathaniel. You're going to see so much greater things than that. But just that was enough. So but now we need to roll, roll back and, and look at this text mindfully and meditatively. I'm like, what's, what's the sign pointing us towards? You know, I think one of the clues is there when it talks about those jars the, in, cha- in verse 6. They weren't just any jars. They were water, parts, water pots of, with the purpose of Jewish purification. John's saying these jars had religious and ritual significance. In fact, the Jews of the day wouldn't eat unless they like, dipped their arms in like, water and like cleanse themselves in a ritual cleansing. It wasn't about hygiene. It was about ritual cleansing and making sure you washed off any of the filth of the Gentiles um, if you came there. And, what, and all of a sudden, these, these jars that were for Jewish ritual cleansing have been replaced with, and, and they're filled now with this wine of abundance and celebration. What John's like telling us is that this new era that we've been talking about, that Jesus is ushering in, it's an era that's going to bring to an end. It's going to fulfill all of the Jewish ritual, all of the Jewish like traditions, all of the Jewish like worship, and it's and it's going to be fulfilled and embodied in Jesus. And when His hour comes, He's going to fulfill it all. And he's going to usher in this time of celebration and rejoicing and this wedding. What John's saying is like, Jesus is the one who is ushering in ultimate joy and bringing to an end all of the religious stuff that the Jews like so depended upon. You know, and the book, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. And I I think it's important for us to think about this. And we're different. Like here in Oregon, we're not a very religious group of people. I mean, at least in the traditional sense, we worship all sorts of stuff, but it's usually not like under the under like organized religion, you know. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about, you know. But I think it's important for us to talk about this because what Jesus is saying is that, or what John is telling us that Jesus is demonstrating, is that religious ritual, church attendance, service, um, ceremony, 
They all have their place. But they're not what's going to bring in the joy that you seek. And they're not the one that's going to bring in this new age that we long for. It's Jesus himself. The writer of Hebrews talks about this uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. I have this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, he says, For the law, talking about the Old Testament law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. Do you hear that? All of that stuff in the Old Testament that felt so substantive is just a shadow. It's not the very form of things. And it, it can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. All of that Old Testament stuff the writer of Hebrews is telling us can never make you right with God. It can never make you perfect. It can never ultimately satisfy you. Religious ritual is replaced with the person of Christ. He goes on, uh, verses 11 and 12. He's talking about the priesthood. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you hear that? In Jesus' hour, that hour when he, when he was taken prisoner, executed, and rose from the dead, he offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, and he sat down as opposed to the priest who has to what? Stand every day and offer the same sacrifice again and again and again. I think this is where the John's accounting of the days uh, comes in. Because in, remember I said that when John says in verse 1 and on the third day? Actually, beginning clear back in verse 19, John's been describing a week to us. Verses like 19 through 28 is one day. Verse 29 starts with the word next day. Verse 35 starts with the word next day. Verse 43 says the next day. And then John says, and on the third day. It's a whole, it's a week. Which means this wedding feast is happening on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. And the Sabbath is this picture of of rest. It's this picture of, of ultimately looking forward to that ultimate day of rest when we will celebrate permanently and perfectly um, with the Lord in heaven. And, and it's, it's the Sabbath day symbolizes for us the fact that Jesus was able to sit down because he offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time. And those who believe in him can enter into his rest because we are saved by faith and not by works. We enter into our Sabbath because Jesus did it all. So it's all wrapped up in this story. It's all wrapped up in, in Jesus' statement about his hour. And think about what he's happening at the wedding. The bride and groom here, catastrophe has befallen them. They lack the resources. Shame is coming upon them. And Jesus takes their shame away. And brings in like joy and celebration and their wedding. That's what he does for us. And his disciples believed that. You know, there's this idea of like celebration and wine and and what God like calls us to, and God's abundant provision is all through the scriptures, and it's on all that hope is like tied into the person of Jesus. I think it was last week or the week before we looked back at Isaiah 53, and how Isaiah 53 like talks about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow really specifically. 
of, of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would be to him. And then in Isaiah 55, we see this promise of restoration. And look what it says in Isaiah 55. And this is the call to every one of us. This is the New American Standard. It starts with this word, oh, or it's like come, or like pay attention. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money um, for what is not bread and wages for what does not satisfy? And it goes on and says, Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. You know, after speaking about the sufferings of Christ, Isaiah says there is this offer to come. To come and find life in him. To come and feast yourself on abundance. And then he asks this question, like, why do you spend money on what's not bread and your wages on what won't satisfy you? What Jesus is demonstrating at this wedding feast is like he is the one that brings in this abundance of blessing and wine and joy. And yet, all like every day of our life, there's this constant like drift in our hearts where we spend our money on what's not bread and our wages on what's not, what won't satisfy us. You know, you, I think you need to ask yourself the question like, what do I really look to? for my satisfaction? What will really make me happy? Or when things are going poorly, what do I look to for my comfort? We're not, we might not be religious people, but whatever those things are, that's what you worship. Where your heart goes in the time of need or where your heart goes when, where nobody's looking and where your heart goes when nothing else is demanding your attention. And, and there's this warning from Isaiah, like, man, there's this offer to come and feast yourself on abundance. And yet we squander it on, on like going after that which can never satisfy. We buy the bread and wine that this world can give us and, and neglect the bread and wine that Jesus provided for us. You know, but the reality is this, is that like for us looking back on this story, that hour has come. Jesus has accomplished that. And, and because he's accomplished that, he, it changes everything. He gives us hope. In fact, there's another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, and this is a great one. And, and we're, in, in just a moment, we're going to be going into communion, and, and we're going to be singing a song that's written based on Isaiah 25. But Isaiah 25 speaks of this feast, and listen, listen to what it says. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. He's talking about Mount Zion, the true Mount Zion. The place where Jesus like offered himself. A banquet of aged wine. Like it's perfect. Of choice pieces with marrow. Like he's talking like the like nice marbled steaks. And refined aged wine. He brings it back to the wine again because it's like the symbol of joy and celebration. And, and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples not just the jewish people not just american people not just white not just black not just chinese not just mexican whatever all peoples this this thing that jesus does that that decisive moment is for 
all people. He goes on. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's what happened. Like, the, the wine of this age will run out. No matter how much you have, no matter how great it is, whether you have the greatest relationship, the greatest marriage, the greatest job, the greatest, like, bank account, whatever you're placing your hope in, like, eventually that wine will run out. And that Jesus, Jesus steps in in his hour of suffering and glory to bring in this greater wine. But it, this feast that, that Isaiah is talking about, the, the, what happened here is for those who behold, beheld Jesus' glory and believed in him. You know, this, this feast of bread and cup, bread and wine, we have grape juice, kind of a bummer, but um, of bread and wine, Jesus is saying is pointing us towards that hour. It's reminding us of that hour, but it's an hour that if it means anything, you have to believe you have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, you find life in his name. It changes everything. You know, so as, as um, Aaron, why don't you come up? Um, Aaron's going to lead us in the song that's based on Isaiah 25, and I just want to challenge you guys, like, to think through those things. Like, think through what is the wine that you're going to, the wine of this age, those, those things that you buy with your wages and your life and your time and your focus and your energy that you think is going to satisfy you that, that doesn't? And, and just confess those things to the Lord and turn your affections at once again to like Jesus Christ who in his hour like accomplished everything for us so that we could find life and have the and enter into the joy of celebration and then come forward for to get the cup and the bread that points us towards that hour and that reminds us of that hour and and partake of the true bread and the true blood of Christ that allows us to celebrate so Aaron, why don't you come forward as Aaron's playing, bring it back to your seats, and then we'll, we'll partake together. Let's just pray. Father, I just thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that, we, that, that in faith and coming to him in belief that we enter into the joy of salvation, and yet we also look forward to that day when we will ultimately enter into rest, when you will lift the, the veil of death that's fallen over this earth and um, and we will be able to say, behold, this is the Lord. This is one that we've waited for. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. And, and Father, in the days in between, you know, as we, I don't know, as we like walk this life, I just pray that you would um, forgive us for all of those things that we go to that, that won't satisfy, that won't quench our thirst, that detract us from you, that, um, and that you would return our hearts to you. And, and so I, I just ask if there's anyone that doesn't believe in you here, that you would open their heart and open their mind to understand um, that they would see your glory and that they would believe in you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 at the beginning, he says this about Jesus. He says, But we do see him who has been made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, the body of Christ. And then in verse 14, he says this. He says, So then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, the blood of Christ. And then it says this. He says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, which is what we all are by faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Like we have access to God. He comes to our aid, and he, and he sees us through to that day. So Aaron, why don't you close this, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, I just thank you for the work of Jesus Christ who faithfully and willingly and obediently went to that hour and loved us to the uttermost and now sits at your right hand in glory. And and Father, I just ask that you would help us to seek you, believe in you, and follow you this week. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.